Welcome to this light conversation with me, Bhaskar Goswami. Insights and inspirations that leave you feeling lighter than when you arrived. I'm delighted today to be with Dr. Larry Farwell, who is a friend and also an extraordinary human being. A quick snapshot, Dr. Larry is a Harvard-educated neuroscientist and one of the world's leading experts in the science of creating miracles. He has done incredible revolutionary work in neuroscience, quantum physics, and his role of consciousness in life and universe was introducing new scientific paradigms. He's also developed practical techniques to apply the science of creating miracles in life. Dr. Farwell has worked with individuals, governments, agencies, high-ranking officials, including head of states, leaders, organizations throughout the world, including President of the United States, the U.S. Navy, FBI, CIA, many counterparts in the, around the world. He's done some patents on leading technology around brain scanning and so on. He has also published research papers in leading peer-reviewed scientific journals and has been featured in all, pretty much all the major media news networks worldwide. Beyond that, Dr. Larry is Times 100 most top innovators time stop innovators and called the Picasso Einstein of the 21st century and neuroscientist, quantum physicist, just a brilliant human being. And beyond that, having met Dr. Larry, beyond a beautiful mind, he also has a beautiful heart. So I'm so happy to connect with you, Dr. Larry. Well, I'm delighted to connect with you, Bhaskar. It's it's always a joy. You're a, a good friend and, and colleague and a, a fellow a seeker and exponent of of truth and enlightenment. So it's always a joy to talk with you. So good. So let's just dive right in. I'd like to start with the macro and then zoom into the micro and how it really impacts our lives and how we navigate forward just as a roadmap, starting with the macro of all macros. And this I call the layers of reality. There's a layer of reality when I, Pascar, am speaking with you, Dr. Larry, through this medium of the computer. There's another level of reality where I'm just about 70 trillion cells and you're 70 trillion cells. So there are different ways of seeing reality. There's another reality when there's this energy frequency vibration in flux and flow and constant change. These, what I call layers of truth, can be parsed in so many different ways. I'd like to just use that as a metaphor for sitting with how did it all begin and why are we here? Whichever layer of truth you want to go into. <laughs> How did it all begin? All right. Well, I, I love your perspective, Bhaskar, to start from the most advanced, most cosmic perspective, and then we'll get into the details. As a neuroscientist and a researcher in quantum physics, I've demonstrated these things in the laboratory. But let's, for a minute, put aside the science and simply talk about, okay, what is the ultimate reality? And... All of the great spiritual teachers throughout the ages have said that the inner field of pure consciousness, which is the essence of our being, our the essential constituent of human life, is the same as the universal field of being, which we now call the quantum field, the, the conscious unified field of quantum mechanics that rises into the physical creation. Now, in 
other times and places, they've used different metaphors and different words to describe that. Here we can describe how the universal field, the conscious unified field, in terms of quantum mechanics, actually rises up into particle wave phenomena, like waves on an ocean, and that's the physical universe we see. Now, if that is the case, as all the wise people have always said, and probably the, the latest book that came out on how to be successful last, last week said the same thing, <laughs> Certainly my book, The Science of Creating Miracles, Neuroscience, Quantum Physics, and Living the Life of Your Dreams, said that same thing. If, it, if that is the case, then it stands to reason that by contacting our own inner being, our own inner consciousness, creating a resonance on that level, we can move nature. It's like we have a guitar, we pluck a guitar string, it resonates at a resonant frequency, other instruments in the environment pick up that resonant frequency, and that's how we influence our surroundings. It stands to reason that the wise people have been right, that that's the way we create our lives. First, we create an inner vision on the level of our consciousness. It moves the conscious unified field, and that shows up in our life. So in a very real sense, we create our lives in our universe. Mm. And what I have done with other scientists is to explore what that looks like from the point of view of quantum physics, measuring in the physics laboratory, and what that looks like from the point of view of neuroscience, exploring the, the brainwaves involved and so on. Hmm. I want to take a step even further back, because I, what I'm understanding is that we're all connected in this substratum of a quantum field where, where yeah. all the fluctuations are sort of intertwined. What's this nature of I from a scientific perspective? And how did this I even begin? Besides, you know, being born from a womb, but what is the right. nature of this eye? Okay. Well, what I've explored in the scientific laboratory and experientially, and what the great spiritual masters that I've mentioned have talked about is the I, the mm -hmm. capital I, I, the self, is in essence, consciousness and the qualities of consciousness are inherently energy, intelligence, and happiness. It, it, you know what it's like to be asleep. You know what it's like to be half awake. You know what it's like to be more fully awake. Well, the, the variable there is consciousness. Higher levels of consciousness correspond to, to more, more energy. When you're half asleep, less energy, less intelligence, less happiness, more fully awake. Well, fully awakened or enlightened, you have that unbounded energy, intelligence, and you have unbounded consciousness all the time. So the nature of the I is the, the large S self is that unbounded infinite consciousness that's beyond time and space. Let me go into an experience that I had when I was 13 years old, where, where the first glimpse I had of that level of life. Uh, I was drowning. I was underwater. I was out of air. I was out of time. And I realized that I had only a few seconds left to live. There's nothing more I could do. It was over. So I consciously let go of everything. I had let go of everything. All my, my plans, my attachments, my intentions, my desires, my connections. Every, I had to let go of everything because it was over. As I consciously let go of everything, a couple of things happened. Several things happened. One is I experienced myself as an infinite unbounded being beyond time and space. I saw my life for the way it really is for the first time. 
I, I felt as if I'd awakened from a dream. My whole life flashed before my eyes. You, you read about people are drowning, your life flashes before your eyes. It was all there, just as clear as this, just as detailed as this, but all at once. I never realized I could have that expanded experience of consciousness. And I felt as if I saw it for what it really was. It was what it was. There was nothing to improve, nothing to change. I saw that it was perfect. Not that I didn't see the mistakes and the pain and all that, but it simply was what it was and it was perfect. And from the perspective of that unbounded awareness that I had had reached at that moment. Mm -hmm. And then I realized, wait a minute, now that I've seen my life the way it really is, now that I know what life really is, now I know who I really am, I'm not leaving. I don't want to check out. I want to, <laughs> I had no regrets about ending it at 13 years old, but I've got something to do here in my life. So I need a miracle and I need a miracle instantly because I've only got a few seconds left to do it. So from that level of unbounded consciousness, having that faint impulse, I'd already given up, released everything, but having a faint impulse, that created that miracle. I got to the surface, I, I'm still alive, as you can see, and at that point, then the, the unbounded experience disappeared, and I was choking and uh, gasping for breath and so on, and I realized at that moment, okay, I've seen what life really is. Now my job here on Earth is to learn how to experience that level of enlightenment permanently and fully, and then teach other people that same thing. So at age 13, that's where I became a seeker of enlightenment. And that's really what my life has been about since. I got into science. I got into neuroscience. I got into quantum physics, not only because my dad was a scientist and I liked science because from the time I was a kid, but because I wanted to understand the consciousness, enlightenment, from the perspective of things we can prove in the laboratory. Incredible, isn't it? From our greatest suffering comes what's ours to do and our greatest gift in the world. What a what a profound story. <laughs> I want to feel into that. This notion okay. of essence of who I am is unbound consciousness beyond space and time. It seems like there's a gradation of consciousness and you were once a young boy you know, little Larry, and then he had this experience and suddenly slipped into a more pure form of consciousness. So there seems to be like a gradation of sorts. And and you speak about a state beyond time and space. What does that mean scientifically? What is this beyond time and space? What is time and space? Well, all right. It, I'll geek out on the physics of it for a minute. Lay people style. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, well, I'll geek out mildly. Mm -hmm. So we have a I have here this desk in front of me, and to me, it looks brown and very solid. You can hear me knocking on. So to a superficial scientific exploration, we have this solid brown desk. However, if we look closer, more scientifically, it's mostly empty space. A tiny bit of it is occupied by molecules moving around at very high speed. It's not solid at all. It's just a, a pattern of the way these molecules are moving. Now, if we look within the molecules, we'll see atoms. If we look within the atoms, we'll see elementary particles, protons, neutrons, electrons. If we look within those, we'll see quarks. If we look more scientifically, we get down to the string theory level, we'll simply be vibrating strings. And what is vibrating? Einstein co coined the term unified field for that unified field 
that vibrates into the patterns that we see as a physical universe. So this is not a solid desk that's different from the air around it or different from my body or different from this boat. It is a pattern of vibrations in the conscious unified field. So the nature of the self is that field, the nature of the I, the subject, the self, is that field that vibrates into the whole universe. And that's why we can, from the level of consciousness, create our lives. And that's another uh, thing we'll get to later in this conversation about how we showed in the laboratory that that's a real phenomenon. Beautiful. Okay, so I'm feeling this. The whole thing, the whole story apparently began about 13, 14 billion years ago. There was this cataclysmic event. We call it the Big Bang. Something like this happened. Is there any insights into why it happened, where it happened, how it happened? Is there anything that's even there we can even grasp with our tiny logical brain? Well, there, there, there are some things we can grasp. I mean, we can extrapolate back to when it happened approximately. Uh, of course, that's only what we're seeing as the physically observable universe that we can that we can physically observe. So beyond time and space is be, is beyond the time and space that we can measure. So this infinite, unbounded, eternal consciousness is beyond the time and space when when the Big Bang took place. Time is a, a construction of consciousness. Time takes place uh, according to our conscious perception of it, just as this physical universe takes place according to our conscious perception of it. And time is not an absolute. We used to think it was in the Newtonian age, which really ended with quantum mechanics and relativity physics. But time is different from different points of view. In, in uh, my previous book, I had a, a story about uh, twin brothers who got into a dispute about how far away one of the nearest stars was. And one of them decided to take off in a spaceship and go there and, and see it. And because he was accelerating in his frame of reference, time passed differently for him. So he came back in 28 years, but it had been several thousand years here on Earth. Mm -hmm. So time is not this absolute thing. Time depends on the, our conscious observation, just as matter depends on our conscious observation. What is beyond that is consciousness. The, con the human nervous system is the greatest instrument we have for exploring the universe, and is certainly the greatest instrument we have for exploring ourselves. And uh, when you take the awareness in, through meditation, you can transcend the finest level of thinking, and what's left is consciousness, and there you directly experience this eternal, beyond time and space level of life. That was what I got a, a glimpse of mm. when I was uh, drowning and then didn't drown. And that is just as clear an experience, just as real an experience, in fact, a more real experience than the concrete things we see around us through our senses. So that level of beyond time and space, that level of infinity, is something which the human nervous system has a capacity to reflect and which we as human beings have the capacity to experience. And I think that's what we're here for, to bring out that infinite realm within ourselves into our lives and live it, not just to experience it underwater or on a mountaintop somewhere, but to bring it out and live it in our life. Right. So let's let's zoom in a little bit. So this is where okay. we're zooming in. I'd like to linger with you around the notion of the predetermined nature of reality. 
So there is a hypothesis out there called the simulation hypothesis that the whole thing is basically, you know, as you mentioned, information intelligence, happiness. There's, there's this, there's something that made Larry come out of the water. Was that accidental or was that predetermined? And, you know, I was reading his book. Uh, this book states that uh, the Big Bang could not vary by even one part in over 10 to 120. So there's one divided by 120 zeros. That's how precise the energy of the Big Bang had to be. It seems to be very well calculated. There are many metrics and parameters that show that there's a very profound intelligence in design, almost intentional design behind this reality where we're in right now. So Ramana Maharishi was asked, is this universe predetermined? And he responded, if it's to happen, it'll happen. If it's not to happen, it won't happen. And then there's also Stephen Hawkins, the famous physicist, who was asked the same question. And he said, yes, it is, but we don't know what's predetermined. And then there are the principles of multiple universes and so on. What's happening uh -huh. predetermin predetermination of reality? Okay. Well, first of all, with respect to predetermination, the whole idea of predetermination depends on linear strings of cause and effect, which are how we thought the universe worked in the Newtonian universe. For 400 years, that really gave us a very good access to being able to do a lot of things in the field of science and the field of technology. It, it gave us a lot of understanding about life. However, it turned out not to match reality when quantum mechanics came along and relativity physics. In the Newtonian universe, time is an absolute. It, just, it progresses. There's nothing we can do to change it. As I said a few minutes ago, it, it, it's a, a subjective thing. Matter. Time is a subjective thing that we create from the level of consciousness, and it's different depending on the the framework. Now, looking at we're well, looking at this table again. Before we make an observation in the quantum mechanical universe, we don't have a bunch of particles here moving at known times, known speeds and directions and having known qualities. Before we make the observation, there is only infinite potentiality. And when we make the observation, that is when the qualities of matter come into being. Prior to the observation, they're only there as probabilities. So to say there may be a 99.99999% probability that a particular thing will happen, but in the quantum mechanical world, there is never a determination of one specific event that's going to happen. But I'll give you an example. And this also relates to miracles and how you define miracles. I was sitting with my dad in a restaurant, and he's a physicist. <clears throat> I said, hey, dad, Any, uh, uh, he studies nuclear physics, quantum physics, and conduct research on that. Uh, and he worked with Niels Bohr, is that, isn't that so? He worked. Yes, he worked with Niels Bohr. In fact, uh, he, we went when I was 12 years old. We went to the Niels Bohr Institute in Copenhagen for a year, and I didn't really understand the physics at that point. But I knew Niels Bohr. I played with his grandchildren. So yes, he, he worked with Niels Bohr, and he was one of the people on the Manhattan Project who developed the first atomic bomb. So I said, "Hey, Dad, anything is possible," and he said, "Yes, yes, son." Any imaginable configuration of quantum particle wave phenomena is possible. Some things are probable, some things are improbable, some things are extremely improbable, but anything is possible. So I said, well, okay, so it's possible that 
all of the elementary particles that make up my body and yours and enough air to breathe will tunnel from here to the other side of the moon and we'll carry on this conversation the other side of the moon. He said, yeah, yeah, you're right. And in fact, and he took out a napkin and he wrote down a formula. I still have a formula. He wrote down a, a formula and he calculated the approximate probability that that would happen. And the probability was really low. It didn't happen. But the point is that even an impossible sounding thing like that is possible. It is not predetermined to not happen. And anything that is extremely likely in the quantum mechanical world is not predetermined to happen. We, on the level of our consciousness, can make a conscious choice of what we're going to observe uh, and also what we're going to create. And one, one take-home message I'd, I'd have, which is a little less abstract, is that anything is possible. Therefore, those impossible dreams that you have, that the critics in your life say are impossible and they'll never happen and it's, it, there's no way that they're going to ever be achieved or if someone has achieved it, it probably won't be you. Those impossible dreams that you have actually are scientifically possible. And the question becomes, all right, can we create an improbable event? Can we create a miracle? A miracle is simply an improbable event. I mean, it was it's anything is possible, as my dad pointed out from the point of view of physics. Some things are improbable. A miracle event isn't an impossible event that sometimes happens. It's an improbable event. So can we create improbable events? And we researched that in the laboratory, and later I'll get to what we found. Yeah, we're going to go right there. So a predeterminist might push back and say, okay, so it's your conscious decision that locks the matter into place. So where is the conscious decision coming from? Isn't that the part of cause and effect as well? Doesn't that also have a deterministic nature? The fact that, I don't know, I, I chose to look this way is an effect of what I did in the past. Well, one can argue that. That's certainly not our experience. I mean, our experience is that we have free will. Mm -hmm. experience. Now I'm now my hand's gonna go up. Now my hand's gonna go down. And that now some people say, oh, that is an illusion because it's just predetermined by all the elementary particles and the patterns they're in. But those people haven't yet graduated from the Newtonian universe where everything was. Like, you know, if you if you know where all the billiard balls are on the table and how fast they're moving, you can determine exactly what's gonna happen forever. But the universe prior to our conscious observation, doesn't consist of billiard balls. It consists of infinite abstract potential. And determination in the quantum mechanical world is only probabilistic. It's not linear cause and effect. You can say something may have a 99.99999999% probability, and yet it's still only a probability. There, there isn't a physical universe that you can hold on to and say, okay, I know where all the gears are and where all the billiard bars are, are so I can predict they were going to be. Before the conscious observation, it's all abstract probability distribution. Jean von Neumann, one of the great mathematicians of all time and the inventor of the programmable computer, sometimes in early days called von Neumann machines. If you wade through 350 pages of his book, the Mathematical Foundations of Quantum Mechanics, you get to a summary where he says, all right, what science can do is never say, okay, this object is exactly this way. This measurement is exactly this way. What it says is, I can set up 
my apparatus. I can set up preconditions such that I will have a subjective experience of X, Y, Z. And he used the word subjective mm -hmm. because what we're creating when we conduct a scientific experiment is an experience. We're not creating a fact. Wow. The universe doesn't consist of facts. The universe doesn't consist of events. The universe consists of experiences, and we're creating those experiences. Wow, that's profound. <laughs> Just that the universe does not <laughs> consist of facts; it consists of experiences. Wow. What I'm hearing from that is improbable things happen all the time. Uh, this yes. encounter is a wonderful example of that. What are the odds of this guy born in a little village in India? being in a zoom call with dr larry who's in a boat you know <laughs> so yes this is a highly improbable event so this notion of focus on the possibility not the probability because improbable things happen all the time we're living that right now in this breathing moment. yes yes and we decided to test this in the scientific laboratory if a miracle is simply an improbable event well let's say for example everyone's had an experience something like this I'd really like to hear from Joe. The phone rings just then, and it's Joe. So that's an improbable event, but maybe it would have happened anyway. Don't, we don't know the probabilities. We do know the probability of alpha particle emission by plutonium. And plutonium, is, we know the exact probability distribution. And my dad was one of the people who developed the atomic bomb, and plutonium was one of the major ingredients. Uh, so he was involved in the discovery of plutonium-240. And so we decided to test whether we could shift the probability distribution of alpha particle emission by plutonium using consciousness alone without any physical intervention. Mm -hmm. And we found that we could. And what that means is that all of the great seers throughout the ages who've said the way we create our lives is by creating a resonance on the level of our consciousness, like a guitar string, and it, it moves the conscious unified field in that resonance, and that's what shows up in the universe. Could, could I, just for me to understand it, did you look at this and say, I want this to happen? Was it a conscious thought, or did you see it happening? How do you mean you use consciousness? I just want to understand that. Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, words fall short in describing experience often, but the, mm -hmm. the way the experiment was set up was this. We had... The plutonium, which was emitting alpha particles, we had a particle detector, we had a signal analyzer, and then we fed the information in a digitizer, and then we, we fed it into the computer where it was mathematically analyzed. And what we could see on the screen of the computer was a little graph that would go up or down depending on how successful we were in creating the outcome that we desired. And what we did to create that outcome what do I do to create the outcome? Now my hand's still. Now it's going to go up. Now it's going to go down. It's not that I have to try. It's not that I have to visualize my hand going up and down. I simply have, okay, hand goes up, hand goes down. I had that very faint impulse of, okay, the, the distribution is going to go this direction. And it would go that direction. A faint impulse, it's going to go the other direction. It goes the other direction. It's not... Anything that we can say that's concrete, the harder we think about it, the farther we are from that field of quietness. The, the intellect shouts, the emotions scream, the intuition whispers. The power comes at that quiet whisper level where we simply have a very, very, very faint impulse. And that faint impulse is what moves nature most powerfully. So we didn't give people any instructions to how to make it happen. And when I was a subject myself, I, di I didn't have an algorithm 
I simply had the uh, faint impulse. Okay, now it's going up. Now it's going down. Ah, this is such a par powerful and profound nuance. It's not a cognitively willed thing. It's just a faint right. impulse of a knowingness almost. A knowingness, yeah. Have you ever had the experience where you just knew that you were going to be successful at some really impossible sounding thing? Before, it wasn't you believed it and you thought about it and you emoted about it and and you convinced yourself about it and you had a good self in you just knew okay this is this has happened and you created that well that's that level of knowing knowing yourself knowing the essence of the universe and from that very very quiet level you propagate okay. that vision. now would be a good time to zoom in a little bit more all right good into this because you're going to make it more Earthbound. But before we get there, I, I have noticed that all these top scientific minds, they have a spiritual side to them. Einstein, Oppenheimer, Schrodinger, your dad, yourself. Yeah. Uh, I know you have a strong background in this uh, transcendental meditation and, and Vedantic studies yes. and so on. So yes. it, it seems to be in that bridge between science and spirituality where genius hangs out. So I'd love for you to speak about what do you what do you see from that bridge? Where do they agree? Do they disagree? Where there where there's symmetry? Where symmetry is still being formed? What are you seeing from that bridge? Well, I think that a major job of myself and other scientists who have some experience in the spiritual realm is to bring within the scientific the realm of scientific exploration the spiritual realm of life or the the consciousness aspect of life, and as I see it, one of the reasons that all of the great scientists or all the great scientists that I've ever come across <laughs> have a spiritual aspect to their life is because the intellect isn't actually the most profound way of knowing how nature works. And Einstein talked about this, that we, we discover the energetic dynamics of nature on the level of the intuition. And then we use the intellect as a secondary tool to categorize that, systematize it, put it into mathematics, put it into words, explain it to others, do experiments. But the way we get the sense of the way nature works is on an intuitive level. When Einstein was, at, was asked if, if his view turned out not to be correct. And he said, well, then I would feel sorry for the dear Lord because <laughs> he, he, Einstein he certainly had a giant intellect. But he was picking up a sense of how nature works on a subtler level. So I think the reason that great scientists tend to develop a spiritual aspect of their life is because they're actually applying that spiritual aspect of their life to see how nature works. And then they're applying their intellect to systematize that and bring it within the realm of science. Beautiful. Thank you. I see one place where those two worlds meet is meditation. There yes. is now a lot of great scientific literature around the power of meditation. Of course, it's one of the, the foundation pillar of spiritual practices as well. So what is the role of, call it mindfulness practice, meditation, and all the various forms it takes? You do the transcendental meditation. I've also experienced that. I'm now rooted in Vipassana, which is awareness of the nuances of my body. So the role of meditation as a practice to almost transition from the more intellectual, outwardly centered, mechanistic world to this more, as you mentioned, intuitive, 
almost access to God's voice kind of world. Yes, I think that's exactly what meditation is. Now, the word meditation has been used to mean a lot of different things. But the techniques of meditation that really have a profound effect are always ones that allow your awareness to spontaneously settle to quieter and quieter levels to reach or at least approach this unbounded field. I think that's what meditation is about. Now, there are techniques where people try very hard to hold the mind, concentrate, and so on. And that actually makes the mind more active. It, it pulls in the opposite direction from going to this inner field of pure consciousness, from this field of silence. So just because something's called meditation doesn't necessarily mean it meets this principle. But the techniques of meditation that are effective meet that principle of attuning one to the, the true self, largest self one's own being, one's own consciousness. And then by having that experience, that then becomes infused more into the nature of one's mind and the nature of one's awareness. And you come out into the world with more consciousness, bringing more consciousness into the world. I think that's what we're doing here on earth is to bring that infinite consciousness into life. Yes. I was also feeling, as you were speaking into the opposite is true as well, how there are these Raja yogis who speak like scientists. There is no flights of fancy mystical realms, believe me, bro. It's all based on a scientific rigor, like the Buddha's Noble Eightfold Path, or Patanjali's Atatanga, the Eight Limbs. There's a rigor to it. There's a synopsis, there's a practice, there's a result, and there's a conclusion. Except instead of what a scientist might call experience, experimenting, they might be calling experiencing, yet the process seems to be very similar. I completely agree. And let me create a bit of a bridge between that and, and what we what we know about, about science and also about the, the human body. We start out as one cell. Or two cells unite. We've got one cell. Now that cell has all the DNA to create a fully developed human body. And all that information is in the DNA. Now that divides into two cells and then four and then eight. Now we have eight cells. Those eight cells have identical DNA and they have identical environment. So with identical information, identical environment, we should get identical results if that's all that's happening. But then what happens is we get different tissues, which are very different. I mean, bone tissue is very different from muscle tissue or the or the tissue in your eye or your brain. And we not only get these different tissues, we get cells that are highly differentiated. We get organs that are highly differentiated and we get complex connections between organs of a hundred billion neurons. And some of them are connected to a hundred thousand other neurons. So something more is there then just, okay, there's this information in a cell and then the environment affects different cells differently. Now, going back to what some people have referred to as morphogenetic fields, that's one way of explaining, oh, there's a morphogenetic field that in a way attracts this pattern. And I, I wrote a paper with my colleagues called Filtered Noise Can Mimic Low-Dimensional Chaotic Attractors. It's a mathematics paper <laughs> published in the physics journal. And a low-dimensional chaotic attractor is an end state that, in effect, attracts matter to get there. For example, low-dimensional means orderly. For example, you throw, and how this relates to the human body, I'll explain in a minute. You throw a, bottle, a ball into the Niagara Falls above the falls. It's so complex 
going over the falls, you can't predict where it's going to end up, even if you know precisely to the nanometer where you throw it. There's there's too much chaos there. But you can predict it's going to be somewhere between the top and the bottom of the river below and between the sides. So that that is a chaotic attractor. You you start a process, the end state is known within certain parameters. Now, perhaps uh, some people have hypothesized, well, the human body is, is and other things that we see in the universe are like low-dimensional chaotic attractors. There are morphogenic fields that draw us to that pattern. Now, bringing this back to what the ancient wisdom has said, the ancient seers have said, we know in the conscious unified field, there is a, a, a tendency, a propensity, which simply means a probability to manifest as uh, protons, uh, neutrons, electrons, photons. That's inherent in the conscious unified field. It's not something separate. All right, maybe within the conscious unified field, there's a propensity to the laws of nature. There's a propensity to not only form elementary particles, but to form atoms. Maybe there's a propensity, a tendency in the conscious unified field to form molecules out of those atoms. Maybe there's a tendency in the conscious unified field to create complex molecules like DNA. Maybe inherent in the conscious unified field are the laws of nature that create the low-dimensional chaotic attractor that, that create the morphogenetic field of what a human body is like. So that is how the Vedic seers, the people who saw deeply into the conscious unified field and were able to see all of the potential there, could speak in such a systematic way. Because they say, here are the, we've explored the laws of nature from the outside in. You can explore the same laws of nature from the inside out. You go to the field of the transcendent where all of those laws of nature are there. If you have a broad enough, clear enough vision to experience those laws of nature, you can make very precise statements about the way nature functions, the way life works. And that's what these ancient seers have done. They weren't measuring protons, neutrons, and electrons, but yet they knew about the conscious unified field. That we're, we've only begun to fathom from the material side. There's so much to explore here. We're yes. talking about transpersonal state, which is beyond comprehension for most listeners, I imagine, that these seers were seeing it from. So understanding this is hard to, un hard to even imagine what you're expressing. Yeah. Maybe in layperson's term, could you summarize what this morphogenetic field is? is? Is that information, energy, intelligence happen? Is that the same thing we were speaking about before? Is it something else? What is that? Okay, the conscious unified field contains the infinite energy, intelligence, happiness, and contains within it the potential, the laws of nature that we expressed in the forms and phenomena of creation. So if we talk about a specific morphogenetic field, that would be an aspect of the conscious unified field. Now, by the way, this isn't a, a belief system. This is my working hypothesis and many others working hypothesis. And the research we've done so far is in accord with that hypothesis. It's not some kind of absolute truth. However, one can experience that unbounded consciousness. One can explore that. The morphogenetic fields, most of the people who have talked about them have not gone as far as, as recognizing that all of the morphogenetic fields are contained in the one conscious unified field that creates the whole universe. So maybe there's a morphogenetic field having to do with the structure of the human body, another morphogenetic field having to do with the way the, the, way the planets move, and so on. All of that would be in the one mm. conscious unified field that creates the whole universe. Like 
like bigger waves in an ocean is, is what I'm living with. Beautiful. Let's let's go a level deeper now, right down to the essence of manifestation and some of the principles behind this and the, the laws of how we can enhance profoundly the probability of creating a life we truly want, creating miracles in our lives. This is yes. obviously the heart and center of how we can bring this into our lives moving forward. Yes. Okay. So first of all, to get a, a bit of a taxonomy about miracles, a miracle is an improbable event. So I think I'd like an apple. I go to I go to my job, I work, I make some money, I come home, I drive my car to the store. It's not apple season. So it's an improbable event that I'll find it. But I find an apple, I buy it, I go home, I've got an apple. I've created a miracle. Not walking on water yet, but an improbable event. A little more close attunement with the conscious unified field on that quiet internal level. I thought, oh, I'd really like to have an apple. Knock on the door. My friend comes in and says, Hey, Dr. Larry, I've got, I have a basket of apples, have one. A little closer attunement with a conscious unified field. I'm sitting in my backyard and an apple truck drives by, it hits a bump, an apple bounces up and lands on the table. Wow. Now, a full attunement with a conscious unified field, you're sitting there and you have the faint impulse, apple, you've got an apple. Now, that happens with a certain probability, actually a higher probability than my dad and me tunneling to the other side of the moon. That is on the water-to-wine, walking-on-water level of attunement with a conscious unified field. So the power of creating miracles has to do with the level of your consciousness. It's proportional to your level of consciousness. So what can we do to enhance that? Well, first of all, direct experience of pure consciousness through meditation is a direct way of expanding your consciousness, bringing more consciousness into your life and enhancing your ability to create miracles, improbable events. There are some principles about various practices that can be done, which will enhance our experience of moving in that direction in our lives. One principle is clarity of vision. And clarity of vision is not the same as specificity of result. And this is a confusion that often takes place. For example, a lot of people think, okay, what I really want is I want a million dollars. But actually, a million dollars is it's a very concrete result. But what you really want is the experience you think a million dollars will bring. You want a million dollars so you can help the causes that you love, so you can help the people that you love, so that you can have freedom to do the things you want to do, so you can have freedom to pursue something which will help the human race. Or so you can have a lot of fancy possessions and impress people. There are a lot of different reasons you could want a million dollars. So what a person really desires is an experience, not an object that supposedly might bring that experience. So clarity in, in creating our vision, clarity of vision is important to, to envision the experience, not the thing we think will bring that experience. Next thing, probably the most important thing, or one of the most important things, is depth of experience. Because at the surface level, you can pound away. I mean, we could, we could write all the stuff we want on a piece of paper and put it by our, our mirror. And if just thinking about it on the surface or trying hard thinking about it would bring about, you know, we'd all be billionaires with a, a, a perfect life and an immense contribution to humanity and a perfect relationship and all, all those things. The depth of experience, when we experience those things on the surface, we have some 
power to manifest. And when you experience at the quieter levels, the intellect shouts, the emotions scream, the intuition whispers. At that quiet whisper level, we're close to the field, the conscious unified field that creates the whole universe. That's a more powerful manifestation. A third aspect is effortlessness. Because the harder you try, the more you keep your mind on the surface. And all of the techniques that really work effectively involve letting go. Remember in my, my initial experience, I let go of everything in my life before I got to that inner experience. And the techniques of meditation that are effective always involve letting go, letting go, letting go, so that mind settles down to a state of quietness. So effortlessness is an important aspect of creating miracles. Now, if you want to develop your triceps, Efforts is you do more push-ups, more effort is important. So I mean, there are areas of life where effort is very important and maximum effort is really necessary to get what you want. I'm not saying that level of life doesn't exist, but on the level of getting the support of nature, on the level of harnessing nature to create that along with you, effortless in these practices of meditation, the inward practices, effortless is important. Which brings me to the next important aspect, and that is support of nature. And what I mean by that is this. One may have a desire that's actually out of tune with nature on the surface level. You know, somebody does something native. Okay, I'd really like to punch the guy in the face. That's what I want. That's not what the real you wants. Not That's not what the unbounded you wants. That's not what nature wants. So as you experience any desire, any impulsive life on a subtler and subtler level, it becomes more and more attuned with you, the real Bhaskar, the real whoever you are out there with us. And it becomes more and more attuned with the conscious unified field. So it might start out as I really like to punch this guy in the face. As you get to subtler and subtler levels, it will have to do with developing harm, with, with freeing the individual from the stress that caused him to act like such a jerk, with, with experiencing the fulfillment within my heart that, that makes me want to be more harmonious towards everyone. The support of nature is a powerful force in support of your desires and aspirations only to the degree that they're in tune with nature. At that finest level, your desires and nature's desires are one. So they really are yours. They really are mine. And yet they're also nature's because they're in tune with nature. So mm -hmm. support of nature is another aspect of manifestation. And this is why truly powerful manifestation is always in a positive direction because it harnesses the power of nature. Let me summarize what I heard. The best I can. All right. So I sit in and I lower the Paskarness and get into a more quiet space where it's not so much about what Paskar wants, almost feels like more around what life wants to experience through Paskar or the unified consciousness wants to experience through you. So as I quieten down, I hear a whisper. And I'm curious, where's the whisper coming from? What is that whisper? Is that me well, and I there, or is that something else? Okay. You always ask such profound questions and explore such profound experiences and ideas. I, I love conversing with you, Bhaskar. First of all, you talked about the Bhaskar-ness as separate from the infinite large S self. Okay. There are two aspects to the self. There's the large S self in which we're all one. It's just infinite, pure consciousness, infinite intelligence beyond time and space. And there's also the small S self, which is not a negative thing. I mean, I like 
uh, I like blue shirts. I like boats. I like living next to a forest. Now, somebody else may really not like boating. May, they may prefer roller skating. So, like, I have a guitar right here. You you pluck the string of the guitar. It has an in, uh, a particular resonant frequency. Well, there's the infinite resonance, infinite harmony of nature. But then we have our own individual resonant frequency, which is different from other people. So a, a desire, a faint impulse of desire that I have can be attuned to the conscious unified field. And yet there's some individuality. It, it, it's attuned to my resonant frequency or things in your life could be attuned to your resonant frequency. So you don't want to get rid of the small s self. You simply want to have the smallest self attuned to the large s self. And in a lot of thoughts and philosophies about enlightenment, you're trying to somehow suppress or get rid of the self. But actually what you really want to do is expand the self to its infinite value, to have your small s self attuned to the infinite realm of creation. You still have your individualities, your own likes and dislikes. Somebody else might like red shirts rather more than blue shirts. And that difference that makes uh, for a, a beautiful garden. <laughs> Thank you. It's a beautiful distinction. So I'm hearing that the whisper arises from the attunement of the small self and the large self. And yes, and it could come as a thought, an image, emotion, some experiences there. And it's more about that experience than about the hundred million dollars. So I'm just ex I'm sitting in an experience. And then what I'm hearing is dropping how to get there. It's not figure out how to get there, yet move towards it without any drama, something like this? Yes. Well, first of all, one caveat, words will fall short. We're talking about experience here. You and I simply have a linear string of words. So mm. the words will fall short. But, however, what you're describing is the, the fundamental process of manifestation or in, in Patanjali's Yoga Sutras, sutras Sanyam. And the way that takes place is you have a very, very faint impulse on the level of consciousness, and then you let go. And what happens is that impulse dissolves into the conscious unified field, moves the conscious unified field, and here we have a paradox because it's silent, it's beyond motion. It moves nature in that vibration, and then that shows up in the universe. And to the degree that you can have the impulse on the faintest possible level and let go and slip into that transcendence, that becomes the power of manifestation. And we only approximate that in our lives. And all, all the techniques that I teach in Science of Creating Miracles, in, in my book, my workshops, my online courses, my retreats in person, all have to do with experientially guiding people to get to that state where that spontaneous process takes place and then that shows up in your life so yes you've described the process very well beautifully so i'm hearing what needs to be cultivated is the quality and the caliber of calming your mind down for the attunement of allowing for the clarity to emerge and then the power of letting go yes yes exactly now one balancing factor is if your house is on fire and you're on the top floor the the best way to create a good outcome is not to quietly go within and get a subtle feel it's to run out of the house sure. and there are very many situations where being very active physically 
very active mentally, very active emotionally, are exactly in tune with what's going on there. And mm -hmm. so it's not the case that the, the only thing to do is seek this inner quietness. But mm -hmm. what we really want to do is, is allow ourselves to experience that inner quietness and to bring it to bear in life so we have the inner silence along with the activity. Um, I have a black belt in Kung Fu, and I've taught mm -hmm. Kung Fu for many years. And what I've seen in all of the great martial artists is while the feet and the fists are flying, they have an inner silence. So yes, what you've described is a process of contacting that inner silence and enlivening that. And you, you do that in, in meditative practices, in inward practices. The ultimate goal is to have that inner silence, that inner unbounded awareness there all the time, along with all of the activity of our life, along with the, the fast moving activity. So we don't eschew uh, high emotions, high intellectual activity, high physical activity. It's just that we cultivate that silence along with it. Well, this is a beautiful quote in the Gita. One who sees inaction in action and action in action is wise indeed. This is the Kung Fu master moving at blinding speed, but inside this perfect stillness or the, or the Buddha on the mountain top, but inside there's a lot of action happening, a universe within. So yes. cultivating yeah. inner stillness, regardless of external stimulus. From uh, from Bhagavad Gita, chapter 2, verse 39, or, or 35 and then 39. Be without activity, Krishna said to Arjuna, be without activity, be in that silence, be without the three gunas, which are activity. And then established in being, perform action, yoga kuru kamani. Established in that unbounded awareness, then come out into the world and perform action and bring that infinite consciousness into our life. So the, the, Krishna nailed it in the Bhagavad Gita. And as you know, this wasn't taking place in a cave somewhere or a monastery somewhere. They were literally on the battlefield about to enter a, a, a great battle. And Arjuna was asking for practical advice. How, how, how do I deal with the contradiction? My heart says, don't kill these people. They're humans. They're my friends and relatives. My mind says uh, my duty requires that I kill them or they're going to mess up the whole world. How do I deal with that? And Krishna said, well, you transcend. You go to the field of infinite intelligence. You create a resonance on that level. Functioning from that level, you will act in harmony with nature. So I'm glad you brought up Bhagavad Gita because this phenomenon is very clearly described therein. And in a very practical sense, not a not some abstract thing you'd only find in a monastery. <laughs> wow, that's <laughs> so beautiful. I want to land with what's alive in your heart? What's something that you're very passionate about these days? You know, I know that before Einstein passed away, he was working on theory of everything and so on that was very alive in him. What's alive in you now that you're that you're longing for and moving towards? All right. Well, you and I together here create a hologram of consciousness that we can radiate out to the, the people who uh, are listening and viewing. And what inspires me is to, on a practical level, bring the experience of what I call the science of creating miracles, all the techniques that I've developed. And of course, there, there are these ancient techniques of meditation. There are all kinds of other wonderful things people are doing. But to bring what I call the science of creating miracles out to the world as a whole so that the everyday experience that people have 
is not one of struggle, of, of failure, of pain. The ordinary experience people have is one of attunement with their infinite consciousness and creating miracles in their lives so that the life simply flows on uh, effortlessly, spontaneously, and very, very powerfully. I would like to create a shift in human consciousness, in the hologram of human consciousness as a whole, such that enlightenment, fully expanded awareness, is the normal experience, the everyday experience. And that means also creating, of course, the, the functioning of the nervous system that brings that about. So what it inspires me is to create a world like that and create a hologram in human consciousness that encompasses the infinite potential and then the process of unfolding that infinite potential in the lives of everybody in the world, or at least in the lives of a billion people in the world. Dr. Larry, you are objectively one of the brightest minds in the world. You could be doing advanced research in laboratories, getting massive million dollar grants. You could be doing all kinds of Manhattan projects here and there. And yet you're choosing to dedicate your life to this. And I just want to take a moment to really celebrate and acknowledge that. It's so beautiful. Thank you, Thank you Bhaskar. You, you are a, 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 fellow, a fellow seer and a, a fellow exponent of enlightenment. It's a delight to talk with you. Before we land, just to say, you've just had a glimpse of this mountain, this magnificent mountain called Dr. Larry Farwell. I recommend you spend more time with Dr. Larry in retreats and conferences and every amazing things that he does. Highly, highly recommend reading this life-changing book, The Science of Creating Miracles. Dr. Larry, I'll land with this one last hypothetical scenario. Say you're in your last breath. Heavens forbid, you know, last breath, just a few more moments to go. Somebody very beloved is next to you. That beloved person is also quite confused and is looking at you and saying, Dr. Larry, please tell me, summarize for me the sum total of your wisdom. What is it that you're trying to say? What would you say to this person in your last few breaths? I would say... Allow yourself to spontaneously know yourself, your true highest self, your infinite self, and love yourself. Know yourself and love yourself. Thank you. Thank you, Bhaskar. So, dear friend, if this conversation lightened you up in some way, please like, comment, and share. Above all, let's keep lightening each other up. Until next time.